0: Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old fashioned, active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? In this episode, I'm talking to Ida Weatherall, a fine wine sales exec from Corny and Barrow. Uh, we discuss how she got into wine, the barriers for young people, and what she's doing to break down some of those barriers. We talk more broadly about wine investment, the big wine bubble of 2011, followed by the big wine burst. My lack of basic wine knowledge, I'm afraid, is on show here, but um, I try and keep up with her. Um, Now this was a bit of a sidestep because wine isn't a traditional asset class, but I think it was a really interesting conversation. Ida's very young, she's bright, and she's full of energy. Absolute joy to talk to. So without further ado, This is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Ida Weatherall, welcome to the podcast. Ida, how did you first get into wine? Oh,
1: good question. Um, so I studied languages for A-level and then was going on to Newcastle University to study French, Spanish and Portuguese. And I wanted to do something practical in between my year of school and university. So I went and worked in a vineyard in France, in Burgundy, and that's kind of the eureka moment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there during harvest, and I saw the transition of these little berries into a delicious wine. And that for me. So, I,
0: were you living on in the vineyard yeah. itself? I see, and crushing and doing everything from harvesting to crushing to.
1: Yeah, so I was there for a little bit before harvest, preparing mm-hmm. the cellar, and then I picked grapes for one day. That was the hardest day of my life, and I think <laughs> the people. Is it still enough. a lamb?
0: <laughs> is it still a manual process?
1: Yeah, very manual. Okay. Um, I mean. There were people there who'd been doing it for 50 years and they were literally running up the vines. So I preferred the work in the cellar, which was really cool, sorting the grapes and then checking on the fermentation.
0: There's quite a lot of chemistry involved, isn't there? A
1: huge amount of chemistry. And how,
0: were you good at chemistry at school?
1: I liked it. <laughs> um, I mean, I, yeah, I liked it. but I was not the top of the class.
0: I see. So you started then at the vineyard and then um, moved to Corny and Barry. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, I did various different work experiences another, in other Chateau and Bordeaux and also in Spain. Um, and then
0: to Cornean Barrow. Um, what, we better just um, describe what Corny and Barrow is and, and, and its business lines.
1: Um, so Cornean Barrow is an independent wine merchant. We were founded in 1780, so we've been going for quite a long time. Um, our main office hub is in London, and then we've got an office in Edinburgh, and shops in Air and Newmarket, And then we have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong as well. Um, We have kind of three, two main parts of the business, private customer sales. uh, So selling to people like you Mm. and anyone who wants to buy a bottle
0: of wine. Directly, will that be online?
1: Yeah, we've got uh, our website, people can buy wine through or through sales reps like me um, where we look after a range of customers and then the other half of the business is the trade so we've either got on trade where that's hotels restaurants bars basically anywhere where you're consuming the wine on site and then the trade general trade so other retailers and other wine merchants
0: so that middle um, uh, pillar of your business on trade um, must have been heavily affected um, by the lockdown
1: it was quite a sorry sight really -hmm. Um, My poor colleagues in the entree team—they struggled. Mm. Um, But
0: are things now starting to creak back to back to normality? Um,
1: there's openings i think this month july we've had a pretty good month in terms of sales for the on trade but i think it's going to be a slow process
0: who are your typical clients
1: so there's quite a big stigma about the fine wine world that the main customers i
0: will get on to (laughs) it
1: main customers wear red trousers and they tend to be generally middle-aged white men and we love those customers that's great but actually it is diversifying quite a lot um getting a lot more women on board which is great younger people engaging and of course the Asian market is huge. Um, We tend not to have as many kind of US customers because they work in a different faces through their own merchants.
0: But yeah. Why is the um, why are there such high barriers to entry into the wine trade? You know, why do we see lots of white middle aged men with red trousers getting into wine? And how can one make it more accessible?
1: I think the main issue with wine is it's quite intimidating. There are quite a lot of words that sound very fancy, often Tannin. in French, yeah, tannins, malolactic fermentation, you know, nice all these buzzwords mm. that are frightening. And I think with many things, knowledge is power. So if you even have a little tidbit of information that you can understand, that helps the entry. Um, Another thing for fine wine is the price, probably. You kind of have to be at a certain age or earning a certain amount of money to be able to spend it.
0: And how then are you um, trying to broaden your client base? I mean, are you running initiatives? To
1: try and engage with my friends and kind of younger people. Going on podcasts. Yeah, (laughs) podcasts, talking about wine, making it fun. Um, I hosted a series of virtual wine tastings during lockdown. So that was a really good way of engaging. I mean, they weren't crazy expensive. Over Zoom? Yeah. Okay. Um, So people would buy the case of wine, get it delivered to their door, and then we'd host the Zoom tasting. And they weren't crazy expensive wines, but still understanding the fundamentals of how wine is made, why wine is expensive, and a huge range, you know.
0: There's so much more. And on those Zoom calls, do you, um, you host them? and and discuss the the various tasting um what's the right word i'm going my terminology is going to be completely wrong in this i know
1: that's okay
0: um, so tasting my friend, notes
1: my friend paige and i actually host them together she doesn't do anything with wine she's a book specialist at sotheby's so she kind of leads the tasting and again makes it understandable if i go off on a tangent a deep wine hole somewhere she can kind of pull me back a bit and level it out and make it make it understanding so we'd go through the kind of techniques of wine tasting the very basic smelling what what you can smell and breaking down those wine words tannin as you said mm-hmm. that is so foreign to people mm-hmm. but if you explain what it does then that helps
0: so we've talked about what a typical client looks like what is a typical client what would you hope um in let's say 10 years time a typical client to look like
1: i think an important thing is someone obviously to have a, a love for wine or, or a want or a passion about wine. Um, it's certainly a fun thing to buy, and I'm hoping as a young lady that there are more women that are going to be buying wine. And you know, we can keep the red trousers. We love the red trousers, we're not, I'm mm. not getting rid of them.
0: They're timeless. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, the timeless, that's a red course. Gigantic. Um, Yeah, I see. And let's go back to the barriers. We talked earlier while we were were setting up about the master of wine, which is seen as the kind of gold standard in wine qualification. What do you need to do to become a master of wine? So it's,
1: yeah, as you said, it's the pinnacle of, wine trade professional wine trade Uh, there are only 394 in the world so it's hugely prestigious and incredibly difficult to do Um, first of all you have to pass the wine spirits education trust exams there are four of those four different levels. And then the actual Master of Wine, there's a couple of theory exams, kind of wine theory, winemaking, then a dissertation-like essay, research project, and then the most notorious test are the practical exams. So So that's
0: a tasting. Yeah,
1: blind tasting. So you're not blindfolded, but the, the glasses are all filled with wine, but you have no idea what's in there. And you're presented with 12 different wines, and you have to ascertain, you know, the grape variety where it's from the qualitative aspects of the wine and there are three different flights so three different exams and that is the all end of
0: kind of wine um, as a percentage Ida, how far through that process do you think you are
1: me oh, oh tiny
0: really tiny <laughs> under under five percent yeah under five really. okay, percent okay. so a lot of work where uh, uh, how and do you get a, how many hours of work would we'll go into becoming a master of wine
1: Think, isn't there a thing where if you do ten thousand hours of something? Oh
0: goodness, it's one of those, isn't it? It's one of those. Yeah, There's
1: <laughs> so so ten
0: thousand hours. Ten thousand hours
1: of tasting, and I don't know. Maybe that's a bit extravagant, but it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. and to train that muscle memory mm-hmm. of taste and recollection of what it tastes like is. Mm-hmm. An extraordinary skill for
0: home. Let's talk about new markets. Cause you mentioned that you have an, an Asian presence mm-hmm. or you have um, you know Asian customers. How has the Asian market affected um, the wine industry?
1: Well, wow. so the main thing happened in 2008, the financial crisis. Um, there was a huge, China had a big st- capital stimulus to get their market going again. And that also coincided with Hong Kong um, removing any duty on wine. So that was a very exciting time for the wine trade. Especially in times of financial crisis, people like investing in tangible assets, you know. They like to think that they've got their little bottles of wine tucked, tucked, tucked away and, and wine doesn't really React to the normal markets mm. as other markets would. Yeah, non-correlated. Um, yeah. yeah, correlated. So, so that's when it started getting going, and it just really boomed until about 2011. And then in 2012, China cracked down on on bribery, and they—sure you know—but they stopped. Well, they forbid any giving of luxury items
0: and, and wine was goods. a category yeah, yeah. And wine was a huge was category within that yeah so and it was pretty much overnight yeah as i remember in 2011 it just um it just stopped yeah
1: and so that has taken a while to build back up and wine well before covid19 was brilliant china was China and Hong Kong were
0: the two wine invest countries. as in the price of wine the price of fine wine yeah, was, was the recovering yeah and sales
1: going through mm. um, it, it was brilliant but since the outbreak of COVID-19 mm. wine sales in China have dropped by 30% so it's it'll be interesting to see what happens mm-hmm. in the future
0: have have China started producing their own uh, wine
1: yeah wine production in China is huge um, there's actually been quite a lot of issues where they have been copying famous Bordeaux-Chapes Mm. literally building the chateau in these vineyards in China and completely copying the label and switching one letter in English that no one would notice. Mm. So there's been a lot of issues with counterfeits but there are some brilliant Chinese wines as well that are being made and Kind of recognised on the global global market.
0: Is there a sort of an exchange where you can look at um, a wine, the wine price, and do they split it by regions or countries, or ha- what are the mechanics of the, the the wine investment?
1: So there's a platform products. called LiveX, which is kind of the global fine wine trading platform. Um, there's the LiveX 100 as well, which you can kind of track where wine is going, and they give you up to date trading prices. From around the world I think they have Something like 30,000 new prices Every day Mm -hmm.
0: Probably more Mm I see Okay It's kind of Is it therefore An efficient market?
1: The tricky thing About wine Is it's so Unregulated There's very little In place On a global scale To First of all Protect for counterfeits You never know
0: Yeah Yeah,
1: The bottles Are going to be or not?
0: Well there was That amazing story In Was it in Singapore Or um...
1: Rudy Was it Rudy in, In California was it in California? It yes. Great. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Um, Bennett, can you explain the background of that story?
1: So there was a young gentleman who saw the enormous potential of wine. Um, I think he had a fantastic palate in the first place. He could taste what was good. He, he made friends with some very wealthy people. In California. In California. And got to taste these wines and would start going to auctions and bidding and bidding and bidding and buying all these fantastic wines and then selling amazing wines, you know, as a collector would do, and it just completely escalated. He sold over, I think it was an eight-year period, I have no idea how many millions of dollars worth of wine, and then it all crumbled. They found out that he had been faking bottles.
0: Through counterfeiting or through... Through...
1: He... Yeah, he would blend the wines himself, so that was the amazing thing about him was people would be drinking these wines and thinking they were the real deal, you know, like 82 or something. they drink it and be like, Wow, it's mm-hmm. you know lovely depth of flavour. Mm-hmm. And he would then tamper the
0: labels, make them all fake. He had an amazing
1: setup. I mean, the guy the juice—it's very impressive. Very, very
0: impressive. There was a moment in that documentary um, when there was a sort of bonfire of the vanities, and rea- um, some of the end users found out that they um, had been conned, essentially. Mm. But they continued to believe or try to think that they believed that it was the real deal. They said, "Well, it tastes so good." Yeah, um, and so. So there is a kind of you can see how people get wrapped up in it yeah
1: completely i think also if you've spent so much money on something you yeah, want to you're invested in it 100 <laughs> <100%. laughs> um yeah i mean there's poor people yeah but, uh, <sighs> that's the issue with wine that one of the main things is you've got to buy it from a trusted source you know
0: from a reputable wine merchant. Of the wine that you sell at Corney & Barrow, how much do you think is drunk in that year, let's say?
1: It's quite hard to tell because the majority of our wine on the fine wine um, side of the business is sold on Primer, which means the wines, you're hedging your bets, basically. It's, you're, set, you're buying the wine whilst it's still in barrel. And it's a, a system that's been going on for years, but it really kicked off about 60 years ago in Bordeaux, um, where post-World War II, the Chateau were really struggling and needed to make ends meet. But, you know, Bordeaux wines need to sit in an oak barrel for a year. So the merchants had this idea of, why don't we just buy it whilst it's still in the barrel? We'll give you a cheaper price because it's not finished good yet. And so that's where it kind of started. And now... If
0: you buy wine on primeur do you have to... You pay the storage costs, presumably.
1: So you... So we've just done Bordeaux 2019 now.
0: Was it a good year? Uh, well,
1: it was a very good year.
0: <laughs> right. right well, write that down. <laughs>
1: no, it was a, a very interesting year as well. Um, but it, In what sense? Well, this release has been very odd because normally at the beginning of every Bordeaux campaign, all the merchants go out and taste, or all the critics taste all the wines from all the chateau, have a very good idea, but because of coronavirus, samples have had to be sent to critics and different merchants, and, and the transition of a wine that's not yet ready can mean it's quite volatile. So some of the findings have been a bit, it's quite hard to gauge. Um,
0: what um uh, findings would they what what would you be looking for on a brand new uh great so or vintage I'm going to get the terminology wrong here again but <laughs> yes. the brand new vintage so, what what are you looking for
1: um so structure you know
0: better for, I'm afraid you've got to define structure. For sorry red I don't.
1: for red wine the structure comes from cannons which is again this wine buzzword um, but tannin is a, a, an element that's active in grape skins and a lot of other fruit. So if you eat a banana and all the little rinds on a banana it's sometimes quite drying in your mouth, that, that, uh, that experience is tannin. Um, so for red wine, the kind of backbone of the wine is tannin, which holds it together, whereas for white wine it's the acidity. Um, so, so you're tasting an emperm, uh, a wine, a barrel sample, and it wants to have sufficient tannin, you know, wants to dry out your mouth a little bit but not too much um obviously it has to kind of taste nice because if it doesn't taste nice now it's really never going to taste good then
0: what okay can you put into words this is a hard question Ida. so good luck can you put into words the difference in tasting wine en primeur and when it's meant to be drunk
1: um so for bordeaux let's take bordeaux as an example tasting wine en primeur it's come straight from the barrel so it's still got four or five months left to fully mature maturing will out the wine um, it will kind of settle it down and then balance and then top bordeaux from the left bank i'd say you really shouldn't be drinking it for at least 20 years time because the wine needs to calm down settle down relax in it
0: that's an amazing skill to have drinking wine from day one and saying this wine is going to be amazing in 20 years time Mm. this is going to be supreme
1: yeah Um, that's the really (laughs) that's the tricky bit
0: yeah um,
1: but it's once you're tasting, I mean, we had a tasting in the office the other day, all, all social distancing, but um, 55 wines maybe in a morning. And once you're comparing them side by side, side by side, you you do get a good idea of what is standing out and what is kind of lackluster and what tastes a bit mouldy and what has really nice red fruits and that kind of thing. So... Definitely comparison is a very helpful tool when tasting wine on camera. Mm-hmm.
0: Just going back to um, the 2019 um, year, you haven't been able to go out, or the um, the vineyards haven't been able to go out to the usual art critics. So what's happened instead?
1: So, um, We're just
0: taking on their word for it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 Neil Martin said it was good. Mm. No, so a lot of the top wine writers have had the wines delivered to them, okay. to their homes, to taste. Uh, wine merchants like us have received hundreds of samples for us to taste. Um, so we've been doing it kind of on a smaller scale system, but of course there are chateaux that haven't been able to be tasted, and... Has <laughs> the
0: weather been favorable? The
1: 2019 vintage was, on paper, a very, very good vintage. Following 2018, it was great as well, um, but it was, some of our producers, we have a lot of interviews with them and talking, they just rave about the weather conditions in 2019. It was dry at all the right places. It when it needed to rain, and I think it was just a very easy.
0: What what years have been bad? What about if I if I receive a bottle of Bordeaux and it's from blank year? Do I turn, Can I turn my Which ones can I turn my nose up at?
1: Um, every chateau will deal with bad weather in different ways um, one...
0: such a diplomatic <laughs> <Yeah>. answer
1: <laughs> no. but one. so I actually was working in Bordeaux in 2013 in Saint-Emilion I don't no. 2017 and there were awful frosts so the frosts devastated over 50% of the vineyards in, in Bordeaux and so 2017 some lesser producers might have been clutching at straws and may not have produced the best wine some people didn't
0: even produce wine in 17 2013 also wasn't great um okay so that that gives that gives me enough to go on i think (laughs) definitely 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 can we talk about new world and old world wine um because this is obviously terminology gets thrown around Mm. um first of all what's the difference between the two
1: so it's a bit of a ridiculous Differentiation um, because people have been making wine, you know, South Africa they've been making wine since 1658 or something, but the, the Old World is Europe, um, Europe as we know it, continental mm-hmm. Europe, and the New World is everywhere else. So the Americas, Australasia, South Africa, even places like Israel are considered New World. But, you know, Who
0: makes do. the rules on this?
1: I don't know. <laughs> no, I have no idea. But that, that is the main difference between Old World and New World.
0: Okay, and then it, what about in taste, in, in the way they taste?
1: So the New World uh, has quite a different climate to continental Europe. You taste Take Australia, for example, you get a lot hotter, intense, drier weather. And the weather has a profound effect on grapes because the sunnier it is, the riper your grape will be, which will make riper flavors.
0: Does that mean fruitier?
1: So let's take Syrah, for example.
0: I don't know what Syrah is.
1: Syrah, Syrah or Shiraz. Shiraz, okay. As it's known in Australia. Okay. okay. So Syrah is a grape that's grown in the Rhone Valley in France and in Provence as well. And so So if you grow it in the Rhône, it's quite a moderate climate, you will get kind of primary red fruit flavours and a little bit of spice, like peppery, peppery flavours. But then if you grow it in Australia and you're making a Shiraz, you will have a lot darker, blacker fruit flavours and almost a chocolatey touch because the... The sunshine makes riper fruit, so that intensifies the flavours and also makes the berries sweeter and the higher sugar content in a berry will make a higher alcohol wine.
0: Mm-hmm. Well let's go back to um, being a master of wine. Master of the wine you'd need to know you'd need to be able to taste those differences. Yeah. One hundred percent. Is that kind of where on the level of master of wine does one need to make that distinction?
1: It's quite well
0: is that quite easy? It's
1: me saying it's quite easy now without the wines in front of me. But it's, it is quite an easy distinction to make because the styles also tend to be quite different, you know, delicater, uh, more delicate, sorry, um, styles in Europe compared to kind of bigger, bolder, heat-induced flavours in, in the
0: New World. Going back to people getting into wine, what avi- advice would you give to people who are trying to, who, you know, go to the supermarket and stand there looking at rows and rows of wine with um, scratching their heads and they want to know, they want to understand more about the wine that they're drinking. What advice would you give to them? I
1: wanna- thing I always say, if people are in supermarkets and don't know what to buy, the best thing to do is go for their own label wines, which seems like an odd thing. I think if anyone produced you a Tesco Finest wine, you'd turn your nose up. But the supermarkets have put so much time and effort into choosing these wines and producing these wines with their, with their chosen producer, that they kind of put a stamp on it saying, this is what we think is best in class. And ultimately, the same wine is going to be on the shelf, but with some different branding and £2 more expensive. But I think another thing is also not to have a prejudice. You know, so many people are like, oh, I don't like Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. But they've probably had one Sauvignon Blanc that they didn't like particularly. Mm. And there's so much more to discover. Mm,
0: I see. And so how would you discover it? I mean, obviously, we could sign up to your Zoom wine tastings. How else could you do it? I mean, can you join wine clubs?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, during normal times, but I don't know when normal Mm. times will be I don't know what
0: that looks like. Um...
1: Trial and error, you know, the we host a lot of tastings and dinner that people could come to. Um, But if you're just doing it by yourself, you know, in your supermarket, the best thing to do is buy one bottle, try it. If you can, take a note of what you thought of the wine, you know.
0: What are sort of top tips in terms of tasting?
1: So professionally, we always keep a record of everything we've tasted, which is a great tool to look back on wine and think, oh, this is why I really like this, or maybe this is why I didn't like it so much and whatever you think about wine is right, you know, there's, that's the best thing, is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder there's no right or wrong answer with wine um, so if you think the Sauvignon Blanc smells like grass, and maybe it does, then it does, you know. And if you didn't like that grassy thing, you could say, oh, well, maybe this Sauvignon Blanc was from France, so next time I'm gonna try one from New Zealand and see if that makes a difference. And so it's kind of systematically going through, I don't know, grape varieties or regions um, and finding your own path.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Um, although I suppose it, it would be quite amusing at sort of dinner party to whack out, whack out your notebook. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, it's a sort of, it's a bit of a sort of conversation cold sack I think yeah. in some respects. <laughs> yeah. But it's,
1: yeah. I think the key is to be open-minded. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like something, then that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. You don't like it. No, no one's, no one can force yeah,
0: see. it. Can I talk to you about a dream that I think most people have, which is to buy a vineyard in France or Spain and retire and live off the uh, fat of the land, as it were. Does that make financial sense?
1: Well, there are two different vineyards you can buy. Either you can buy uh, a vineyard that is going to mean making slightly larger scale production but at a cheaper price point say £10 a bottle, you buy a nice vineyard in Long Dock, have a lovely time put your feet up um, but owning a vineyard is also a hugely labour intensive operation, you know you've got staff costs you've, what happens if there's a bad vintage, you know, hail can come and destroy all your crops.
0: 2017, yeah. 2013 Nightmare. for example in Bordeaux <laughs> <laughs>
1: um so you can do that but
0: what do you think the minimum size of vineyard you would need to buy to make it profitable
1: it all depends on where you're buying the land spain spain
0: well, and i know <laughs> that i know yeah, that i've been looking
1: well if you're making sherry for example you've got to make sherry cool that's part of my part of my job um
0: well, it is cool fino is really cool really go to cool. barifina yeah
1: um, but so you could have twenty-five hectares of vines in Andalusia, for example. But sherry only costs ten pounds a bottle, max, realistically. Or fino, mm-hmm. Um And then and then you have to employ someone to do it. And you could you could tick over, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, Andalusia is a very cheap place to live. Yeah. And have a house, but say if you want to go to Burgundy and buy 25 hectares, it would be not impossible. Yeah, yeah, okay. Like a good example is um, de Tar, which uh, is a Burgundian estate, and that was purchased in 2017 for I think 200 million pounds. My goodness. And that's for seven hectares of vines. So it's crazy, mm. you know. But those seven hectares in Alsace can't do
0: anything. Uh, interesting. Ida Weatherall, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Ida Weatherall. If you'd like any more information about Corny and Barrow, then head to their website at cornyandbarrow.com. And if you've enjoyed our podcast, then please subscribe uh, and rate it, and maybe even tell your friends.